I think will be our third to last sermon in this study of James, and we're going to look at verse 7 through 12. So let me read those verses for us and pray briefly, and then we'll begin together. So here now as God in his goodness and perfection speaks to you through his word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we are grateful that you continue to minister to us by your word and spirit, and that your spirit is life-giving, that it's active, that it's pure, that it's holy, and that it is able to cut us to the heart, that we might respond in faith and repentance. And so help us to hear your word unto that end, unto those ends even this evening, that we might receive it with meekness, that your spirit might do his work within our hearts of making us more into the image evermore of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever happened to have reason to pick up pretty much any preaching book in the Protestant tradition of the last 120 years? you would almost invariably, no matter the denominational heritage of the author, no matter the seminary in which the author taught or teaches, uh, you would find that author alluding to this man, an Episcopal priest of old named Phillips Brooks. And he takes, Phillips Brooks, a very simple definition of preaching that has become, at least in homiletical circles, the most commented and quoted Definition of preaching that seems to be in the English language today. He simply gave three words. What is preaching? He says it's truth through personality. And if you knew anything about Phillips Brooks' ministry, you would know that his ministry in every way just brought that definition of preaching to life. He was said to be a man that was unusually powerful in the pulpit, but even outside of the pulpit, he was supposed to be a man that was full of poise and and dignity, but As I'm sure many of you would understand, even those men and women that have the most poise and the most dignity still can be people that occasionally lash out in irritability. So his friend once said that he went into Brooks's study and found him pacing feverishly about the room, up and down along the way, treading something of a path in the carpet, and said, what's the trouble, Mr. Brooks? And he said, well, the trouble is I'm in a hurry but God isn't. And I'm sure many of you can sympathize with old Mr. Brooks's trouble. Maybe even this week, perhaps in months recent, you've found yourself troubled. But the trouble is because you're in a hurry, 
And God seems to not be in the same hurry that you're in. Maybe the Lord has put you in a season of suffering and you are in a hurry to get out of it. But the Lord is evidently in a hurry to keep you in it. Perhaps you're in a season of temptation and testing and trial and you're in a hurry to get out of it. But the Lord evidently wants to keep you in it. And James is going to have a word for people like us enduring such trials and tribulations and sufferings and sadnesses tonight as he simply is going to call us, if you noticed the commands in our text, principally verse 7 and 8, be patient. It's a virtue that no doubt belongs to life in Jesus Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And I would imagine that for every single one of us in the room tonight, we have no small number of reasons why we need to hear this simple two-word command. Be patient. Now, it's been two weeks since we were in James, so it's necessary to know where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you just glance back up to the verse six verses, uh, you might recall that James, in, in a way that is in keeping with the tenor and tone of, of this letter, but no doubt in a perhaps surprising way in verse 1 of chapter 5, he just exploded. He absolutely erupted against what we referred to as these wealthy sinners, these, these rich people that were evidently afflicting and oppressing poor believers to whom James wrote. And it's in light of that context now he speaks to those very poor people under affliction and oppression and he's going to tell them, you must be patient in your suffering. That's the simple theme, it's the main idea of our text tonight, patience in suffering. And surely, you came through a week where you had no small number of reasons where you had to be patient, right? Perhaps you sat at a traffic light and you had to be patient. Others of you were making food and your kids had to be patient on it to be ready for them to eat. Or maybe you've had to be patient on a project not coming to completion. Maybe your children were somewhat cooped in by the winter storm and you had to be patient with them as they had something of cabin fever. Maybe you've had to be patient as you've waited for your eyes to close and sleep at night. Maybe you've had to be patient over children fussing and crying. You've had to be patient. But you want to know that in light of this text, all of those examples of patience have nothing to do with what James has in mind. Because what he has principally in mind is patience, not in the ordinary trials and travails of life in Jesus Christ, as much as patience in suffering, patience in affliction, patience in oppression. So we want to see what he has to tell us about patience in a few simple ways. Uh, three in particular I want you to see tonight as we walk through verse 7 through 12. The first thing I want you to see is our obligation to patience. Our obligation to patience. Look again at verse 7. He simply commands, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And you're going to get a sense of why he utters this command here. Because sometimes James in his writing, he seems to insert a command. He inserts some instruction that seems altogether abrupt with the immediate context. But clearly, doesn't he link verse 7 to what's come before by saying, Be patient then, or be patient therefore. And if you just kind of glance back up again to this first part of chapter 5, what you see is that James has told us these wealthy sinners... They're evidently defrauding, even imprisoning these, these poor believers. 
And their cries, these poor believers, it's gone up to the Lord of the harvest. And a time is coming, that James says, when these people that have lived in self-indulgent luxury, people who aren't realizing that they're just being fattened up for the slaughter. Well, verse 1 says, these miseries will soon come upon them. And so what James is telling his readers and listeners, yes, you may be in the midst of immense suffering. You are in the midst of immense difficulty. But you must be patient, waiting upon the Lord. Those of you that watch sports might have an idea of the kind of patience that James is after here, according to the original meaning of the word. You may have perhaps watched a football game before, and you've seen a wide receiver lash out against a quarterback and suddenly get a flag as he's called for unnecessary roughness, this personal foul. And you kind of have the camera zoom in on the receiver as he's getting the flag called on him, and he's like saying, I didn't do it first, he did it first. You know, I mean, I wasn't the one that started this whole thing. And You'll get the same thing in basketball with technical fouls or soccer with yellow cards or potentially red cards. It's the idea of retaliation. And that seems to be what James is after here because the language here for patience, you could translate it more uh, properly as um, long-tempered, long-suffering. It's as though, kids, if you, you, you set a timer on your temper, a patient person, it would take a long time for that timer to go off, for that temper to erupt, or in the midst of difficulty, hardship, there's no retaliation in that given situation. It's someone who is patient in the midst of the circumstance. And so instead of retaliation rising, James says it's to be long-suffering that permeates your life. When affliction came your way recently, what emotion rose up in your heart first? You know, students, you need to understand that as you continue to live your life in Jesus Christ, you may not have experienced any profound suffering, any profound difficulty or affliction. But as we're going to see in weeks to come in our evening studies as they progress, it's true that Christians will eventually endure suffering and trials. He's already said as much, hasn't he, in chapter 1 of this book, when you encounter trials of many kinds. Oh, what's going to be that emotion that rises up first, that response that reveals itself? And the quality of your spirit and heart before the Lord. But it's supposed to be patience. That's our obligation. Now, you'll see as James is a, is a proper preacher, he sprinkles illustrations and analogies throughout all of his teaching. And so what you want to see now in verse 7, really, through almost the end of our text in verse 11, we get our illustrations of patience. Because you see how he continues in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So illustration number one is is the farmer. Uh, You know, of course, don't you, that the first century world in which James wrote, it was an agrarian society. That's why you have these agrarian metaphors and these words and analogies and similes about farmers. They're all over the Bible, aren't they? It's a normal way to illustrate in that context and culture what it means to be patient. You know, the farmer plows, the farmer sows, and then what does the farmer do? Wait. And wait some more. And keep waiting on that which he or she can't control, which is rain falling from heaven to to water the plant. It was a few weeks ago on Sunday morning that one of our Sunday school teachers evidently gave her class these Easter plants. 
some of which were a cactus. And so I saw kids passing through the hallway past my office, all with these plants in hand. And I'm like, what are you doing with that cactus? And what are you doing with that plant? And with a grin of excitement and expectation, they said, well, we got this Easter plant and I need to go home and take care of it. And I wonder if any of you kids had received such a plant a few weeks ago, if you are waiting on it to flower, to bloom, to continue to grow. That's your illustration number one. But you see then in verse 9, he inserts another command in the midst of the illustrations that are going to continue. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. It's pretty clear, isn't it, why he might insert a command about grumbling here in a broader context that's about patience and suffering, steadfastness and suffering, because isn't it true that one of the ordinary ways that impatience will reveal itself in seasons of suffering is you just begin to grumble. You begin to complain against one another. In a way that James has already done in this letter, even as recent as chapter 4, he's going to connect this sin of grumbling, do you see, with this broader sin of judgment. Because what he's saying we do when we grumble is we actually judge another person. You know, we grumble because they haven't done what we think they should have done. Or we grumble because... They did what we think they shouldn't have done. And the point is what James is saying is that when we grumble against the person, what we're doing really at the core is that we are, we are speaking a word of judgment over them, a word of judgment even against them. And he's already warned his readers and reminded his readers in chapter 4, there is only one judge. There's only one lawgiver, which is why, notice verse 9 ends, behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, there are occasions as a parent, aren't there, if your children are younger, some of you might be able to think back to those days when <clears throat> your kids are playing in the room behind a closed door, and you're, you're walking to the room to tell them, hey, it's time for dinner, or it's time to go outside, or perhaps it's time to perform this chore, and then when you get to the door, and before you just kind of perhaps knock, but more possibly you open the door and walk in, you, you hear something that catches your ear, something that maybe shouldn't be said. Or you hear something that ought not to be done happening in that room, and you think to yourself, if they only knew that I was right outside this door, I'm sure that they wouldn't be saying that. I'm sure that they wouldn't be doing that. And James is saying the exact same thing is true in the life of an ordinary church, that you're not to grumble against one another because the judge is at the door. Now, there's two ways you could take that language of at the door. It could be simply that he's at the door and he sees and knows what's going on the inside. That's, of course, true. I think what's more likely in verse 9 is it's got the idea of the Lord is at the door of history, especially in context of what he's just said about the coming of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is that soon the Lord's going to barge in through the door and usher in the kingdom of heaven. And well, whether or not uh, that side is right compared to the other interpretation, the point is simple enough, isn't it? What he's telling the church there that he's writing to, the Christians to whom he addresses, he's saying, would you really grumble? against one another if you knew the Lord was at the door watching and listening. You know, I had a pastor friend of mine tell me once that more local churches have been destroyed through grumbling than through false teaching. And it's a statement, of course, that's almost impossible to adjudicate. But my anecdotal experience and observation would say, I think that's quite true. How often grumbling destroys a people much more than error. 
Well, he gives us a second example, a second illustration, doesn't he, in verse 10, an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, the prophets belong to that portion of the Bible that uh, many Christians just don't know what to do with all the times. You know, the books are long, perhaps the books are obscure, the context is unknown. But you, you, you might know enough of your Old Testament prophets to know that their ordinary experience was often a difficult one, wasn't it? You know, Elijah, he was hated and he was hunted. Jeremiah was thrown into this cistern and threatened with starvation. Amos had this false accusation against him and told to go home. So much was it true that God's people of old opposed the prophets, brought suffering upon the prophets, that you can get to Acts chapter 7. And this deacon named Stephen, well, he, he's preaching, and by the end, and it generates weeping and gnashing of teeth in his audience, he says, was there ever a prophet that you didn't kill? James is saying, consider the prophets with great endurance and steadfastness spoke the word of the Lord. Verse 11 gives us our third illustration, that of Job. He says, behold, we consider those who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. I trust, kids and students, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. He's one of the principal figures, isn't he, of what it means to be steadfast, to endure, to persevere, to be patient in suffering. He lost all of his health. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his family. He lost all of his fortune. And yet still he could say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is our obligation to patience. These are our illustrations of patience and it leads us to Finally, our foundation for patience. As you see how verse 11 ends, we have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What is it that's going to strengthen you through seasons of suffering? But knowing God's purpose for his people. Knowing God's character towards his people. But depending on your translation there, the original word that my ESV translates is compassionate. It's a compound word that other translations might translate as very compassionate. Or in God, there is much compassion. There's no shortage of compassion towards his people in the midst of their hardship. There's no small amount of, of mercy towards God's church in the midst of, of their suffering. This purpose is always, I wonder if you believe that. When you face hardship, adversity, and affliction, his purpose is always, of course, for your good, his purpose is always one of compassion and mercy towards you. And don't we see that most preeminently in Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of all of his suffering, all of his affliction, all of his endurance and patience in the trials? God was bringing forth his purpose, which was one of compassion and mercy. Knowing the Lord's character, then, I think helps us understand verse 12. You see this final command in our text that seems to be inserted again rather abruptly. He says, but of all, of all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's clearly Quoting from his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the Sermon on the Mount. But you might want to ask the question, why is this sudden command related to swearing show up in a text that's about patience and suffering? 
It seems most likely to me that it's because in that ancient form of oath-taking or swearing that oftentimes you would invoke God's name on the oath or the vow. An oath or a vow that may lead you into falsehood. And James says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Don't pour his pure character into your sinful vows. You have an obligation to patience. God's given you illustrations of patience. And of course, he himself is the foundation for your patience. You know, outside of the Bible, the uh, books that have shaped me most in just my ordinary life, not just ministry, just ordinary life, are these biographies of old saints, you know, these stories of men and women that have gone before and the way in which they have experienced life in Christ. And one of the singular biographies in my personal experience is titled To the Golden Shore. It is the biography, it's the life of a missionary of old named Adoniram Judson. And it was in 1812 that Judson sailed across the ocean to what at the time was called Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. And he hit the ground and he began to get to work. He was something of a linguist, and so he quickly adapted to the local language. He translated the Bible into their dialect. He kept preaching and ministering Jesus Christ. And nearly seven years passed by, and there's not a single convert that he has won to the Savior And you think about that happening even in our day for seven years, a church being planted and not a single soul coming to Jesus Christ. How many churches might shutter their doors? Even missionaries for six, seven years laboring and then maybe being pulled off the field for apparent inefficiency in the ministry. But it was in 1819 that his first convert what came through the preaching of the gospel, and 12 years later, the Lord had continued to use him in such a way that little more than an awakening and a revival had fallen out upon the land. So often it's true in our own lives, who knows what God is doing? Who knows how long it's going to take for him to fulfill his purpose, decreed in eternity past for us? Therefore, it belongs to us to only be patient as we Look to the Lord. So as we begin to close, what I want to do is focus our attention just on the two final phrases of verse 8. And how in many ways what they give us are the two feet on which patience and suffering walks and moves for the glory of God. The first thing I want you to see is that patience and suffering means strength in waiting. Strength in waiting. You see verse 8 in the middle phrase, it says, establish your hearts. It's a word established that you could translate as stand firm in your hearts or perhaps more properly it's it's strengthen your hearts. Don't you know that many of the times in which we lash out in impatience and hardship is because our hearts are weak in the truth? That what we need is what James himself is giving us. Strength and fortitude. Increasing power in the heart that we might be able to stand steadfast in the midst of suffering. That we would have strength in the midst of knowing that God's law and command to us is that we would be patient. That his provision in the spirit is that we can be patient. That we have all of these illustrations of saints that have gone before us of what it means to actually be patient. Someone even like Job and Jesus Christ who have known patience and suffering that far exceeds any suffering we would ever face. And most principally, isn't it the truth of the end of verse 11? We need strength in who God is towards us in the hardship. 
Satan will take that suffering and that difficulty and twist your perspective of God in such a way to think that he's anything but compassionate and merciful towards you. Because if he really was, he would have answered your situation a long time ago. No, he is compassionate and merciful. It means strength in the waiting. And number two, you see at the end of verse 8, it means faith in the watching. Establish your hearts, James says. Verse 8 ends, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Similar language, isn't it, to verse 7. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. It's perhaps not necessarily good news if you are in a season of suffering. How long do I need to be patient? Well, until the Lord returns. Not just until he alleviates this suffering. Well, as long as he's got you here on earth, forever mean minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, you'll be patient until the Lord returns. Because, of course, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he's going to make all the wrongs right. That's why the early Christians, they had this real fervent desire for the Lord to return in such a way that if you were an early Christian, you didn't almost think about the Lord's return daily. It was considered in many local assemblies something of like this mild heresy, such as the nearness of the Lord's return. No doubt, 20 centuries or so on from James's instruction, we're still waiting, aren't we? But are we watching with that faith and fervency for the Lord's return well, I hope you do know that a few things will give you that strength in waiting. A few things will fuel your faith as looking to the Lord's return. Because, of course, when the Lord Jesus returns, no matter your trial or trouble, your suffering or your sadness, your adversity or affliction, he's going to make all the sad things become untrue for all of eternity. What then is your small season of waiting, of watching, of being patient compared to an eternity of rest and blessedness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we do pray that you would grant within us the perspective of your servants that in this affliction that we might find ourselves this night, this day, that we might consider it light that we might consider it momentary, that it's achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,